This is the Family Practice Podcast, an informal, interview-style podcast exploring the stories, experiences, and expertise of LGBTQ medical providers. I'm your host, George Fraley. (laughs) Welcome to the Family Practice Podcast. Today I have with me Simon Ellis. Simon, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, I am a certified nurse midwife, um, and I do what I call full-scope midwifery care, which means um, I do everything from abortions to deliveries and also um, you know, gynecologic, sexual reproductive health, trans health, all of that stuff. Wow. So when did you get into this? When did you start your, your, your work? So I... Um, I became a midwife in 2012, so it's been like six years. Um, And before that, I was a doula for a little while, so it's a non-medical birth assistant. Um, And I was fighting to get some some education on trans health throughout my education, so started doing trans health work in addition to the kind of more normative midwifery stuff as soon as I graduated. What was your interest in midwifery? How did that sort of come about for you? <laughs> um, I My very first uh, birth that I attended was beautiful and dramatic. Um, it was my best friend's birth 15 years ago, just over 15 years ago. Um, and I had never seen anyone give birth. I had only seen it on the movies, which is very inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was overwhelming and scary because it was an accidental home birth. And I was the only oh, one wow. there until pretty much the very end. But it was beautiful uh, and the most human thing I've ever seen. And it gave me this like sudden appreciation of like, oh, yeah, this is how humans get into the world. This is like how we as a species exist. And it was really amazing to see someone um, that I loved so much uh, doing that in front of me. And she very quickly was like, you should be a midwife. And I was like, no, that sounds like a lot of work. Um, But maybe I'll be a doula. But that sounds like a lot of work, too. Um, But I did pretty soon after that, I really started making the kind of mental decision that that's what I would do. And then it was a long drawn out process of taking one prereq at a time for years. And I did a lot of that studying with that kid uh, on my lap, looking at the body books. Uh Um, And my best friend has just, you know, she was my cheerleader every step of the way and would do anything to make sure that I stuck with it. And I did. So this happened. (laughs) Very cool. And how has your personal identity driven your Mm. your career progression? Yeah, I mean, when um, the first birth I saw, I was not out to myself or to anybody else really yet as um, I was out in terms of being queer, but I was not out in terms of being trans or non-binary. But it wasn't too long after that that I came out to myself and to other people, and I was really determined that my midwifery practice would include trans and non-binary people, both in terms of, first I just thought of it in terms of pregnancy and birth, mm-hmm. um, and then it, I realized there was so much more that I could do, and I, um, and I was really excited to do hormone therapy management and like gyne care and all that stuff. Um, but... Yeah, no, nobody, when I took my doula training and all of that, nobody believed me that trans people would be having babies. And I'm like, just you wait. <laughs> it's going to happen. <laughs> how many how many trans folks have you worked with through pregnancies? 
A lot of my work with trans folks around pregnancy has actually been in preconception um, and getting ready for pregnancies. Uh, a lot of the trans or non-binary folks, I would say the majority of folks I've worked with actually, actually through pregnancy have not been out to anyone but me mm. um, about their gender identity through the pregnancy. So it's kind of under the radar. Mm. Yeah. And do you find that patients seek you out specifically because of your identity? Certainly for um, gynecologic care, hormone therapy, preconception counseling, there's a lot less choice when it comes to like insurance really determines who you can see for labor and delivery to a great deal. Okay. So I certainly have people that want to see me and can't. Um, but, you know, it was interesting because the last clinic I worked at, most none of my patients, I think, had ever had a trans provider. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I left, it was it was like this big, difficult thing because um, whether they came to me for that or it was a bonus, it became very important to them. And so when I left and they said, who's you know taking your place? Um, and I couldn't guarantee that a trans person would be taking my place. that was that was difficult. Oh, sure. I mean, they yeah. must have developed quite a bit of trust with you and of like a shared understanding in a way. Yeah. And there was definitely like a shorthand that we could have together that I know like cis providers are not going to have with their trans patients. And um, I think just, I don't believe you have to be, you have to have gone through any particular experience to provide good care through it. Like I haven't delivered a baby and I think I provide good care during labor and delivery. So I don't think you have to have been through transition to provide good care, certainly, but it there's a shorthand that comes with that experience that was really meaningful when people would like give me a look and I'm like, okay, so your junk hurts. That's what's going on, right? <laughs> and they're like, uh-huh. You yeah. know, like it it's it's just different. Yeah. So in your, you know, in your gender transition mm-hmm. and your progress, mm-hmm. um, when did that begin for you in terms of your medical? Yeah. Um, so the must have been about, it was just over 10 years ago, I guess 11 years ago. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cause my partner and I've been together for 10 years. It was just before that. Okay. Yeah. And how was your medical training for you in terms of your identity? My medical training as a provider. Mm-hmm. So it was non-existent if I didn't like claw for it. And even then it was denied a lot of the time. So midwifery programs, and this is something we're really working on right now. Um, some of us are, and some of us are opposing it, but we're really working on getting, um, any kind of queer trans non-binary education into midwifery schools. Pretty much it doesn't exist. So when I was a student, I was actively seeking out opportunities, going to conferences, any conference I could get to that had actual clinical content I would go to. There was, um, a clinic at that time in California, I can't remember which clinic, that had like um, a rotation in trans health. And so I applied for that rotation and they denied me because I was a midwife. Um, And they said, you're not a primary care provider. And I said, yeah, midwives are primary care providers. It's part of our scope of practice. Um, But they they wouldn't let me have a rotation. So I fought and said, well, then at least give me your curriculum. Like, give me something. So they had a video curriculum that accompanied the rotation. So I was able to do that entire video curriculum. Um, And then just a lot of research and and also personal experience and experiences of of friends and loved ones informed Mm -hmm. my work. But... Formally, there was there was nothing. How how do you feel about how 
midwifery fits into medicine? Yeah, well, I think I think that's a really interesting question because we a lot of people think um, that midwives only take care of pregnant people, that we only um, attend to the childbearing year, and that is true depending on licensure. So there's a lot of different ways to be a midwife. Um, in Washington State, there's two primary ways to be a midwife, and you either um, are licensed midwife and your scope is the childbearing year, or you're a certified nurse midwife where you are essentially an ARNP and you have a much broader scope. Um, but I think although our scope is broad and we do a lot, I don't think like the overall medical field's understanding of that has caught up with what we actually do. Yeah. Yeah. I spent two years in New Zealand, and mm-hmm. they have a really, you know, they're more of a socialized healthcare mm-hmm. system. And they have this interesting thing where from um, the time that a woman is pregnant mm-hmm. or someone is pregnant, they are immediately taken care of by midwives until yeah. after six weeks of birth. You don't even see them anymore. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. And, and it's so fascinating to me the way midwifery is globally mm-hmm. um, and historically. Midwives have been... Historically, midwives were the ones that provided most of the medical care for a community and not just for the pregnant people, but we've mm-hmm. forgotten that. Yeah. Um, community-based, you know, historically community-based midwives and granny midwives took care of their entire community. They took care of people who were dying. They took care of kids. They took they took care of everyone because they were the person. It's like, you know, a small-town doctor will do all the things, the same thing with midwives. Um, but now in different countries, midwifery is like, a hybrid of a nursing, like in some countries it feels a little bit more like nursing plus baby catching in other countries. Mm-hmm. You know, it's totally different in in all different countries. And and here nobody, very few providers other than midwives or OBs understand what a midwife is yeah. here. Yeah. There's a more established role, I think, in some other countries, even, you know, whatever that the specifics of that role is, it's more like pregnant people see the midwife. That's just how it happens. And here um, it's not, it's nowhere near a majority of births attended by midwives, but we'd have, um, a more effective, cost-effective healthcare system if we had more people being, um, attended by midwives. And we'd also, we know that our outcomes are really good. So, yeah. 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 That's an interesting thing. Like with PAs and Ps, mm-hmm. um, our health outcome data is like equivalent, if not sometimes a little bit better, better, yeah. but, um, the fight for like recognition is totally always, always present. Totally. And it does feel like there's extra layers of that. I think as you alluded to earlier as a midwife, because being recognized, getting, you know, any PAs or NPs getting recognized is difficult. And then we're like, yes, we are that we do exist. And also yeah. like we do abortions, we do, you know, hormone therapy management for a variety of things, whether it's menopause or contraception or gender affirmation. Like we do a lot of different stuff. Um, how do your, well, when you're caring for folks, you not only care for LGBT non-binaries, mm-hmm. but you also care for cis and heterosexual. Oh yeah, I mean, my practice folks. is, you know, I my practice is whoever has our insurance and is coming to us for insurance. Mm-hmm. Now, historically, this practice has been um, the practice of choice for like LGBTQ families in this area. Uh, but yeah, now I see everybody. And is that smooth for you? Are there ever any yeah. hiccups or bumps for you? It's interesting. Um, I think mostly getting through school was far more difficult than being in practice in terms of being trans and being perceived as male. Like, um, my patients are much less worried about it than my 
future colleagues were when I was in training. Um, and generally, if um, if I if a patient doesn't want my care, it's because of religious reasons. And I always want patients to be the most comfortable. And anybody can decline to have a provider, any provider, but specifically someone that's presenting as male. Like I am never offended if patients decline and I will do anything and everything I can to make sure they still get really, really good care that they feel safe and comfortable receiving. But that very, very, very rarely comes up. Um, I think how smooth things are depends on a lot of things, including like, am I taking testosterone at that time? Because I am not like a consistent hormone therapy person. I'm like, just the way my gender works being like I go on and off tea, I change my dose, I am always doing something different because nothing, you know, I'm I'm super genderqueer, nothing is right. So you're always uh-huh. just trying to chase like what's close enough to being right and you overstep and then you understep. And you, so patients perceive me differently depending on what's going on and that's weird. How does that affect your, like, your, you know, sex hormones provide mm-hmm. you with mood and energy yeah, yeah, and yeah. flow. How does that affect <laughs> you, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, no, that's a good question. It's, I feel like um, hormonal change is difficult. Yeah. Like, it's really difficult. So I've gotten better at understanding what I need. Um, and so I'm not making, I don't tend to make drastic hormonal shifts now. It's like if I'm on T, I'm on a whiff. And then if I'm off T, it's just that little whiff that's gone. Yeah. So basically like titrate it to ability to use bathrooms safely, uh-huh. hips yeah. and mood. I <laughs> like kind of what I titrate T to. So it does have a, it does have an effect on mood. And I can't say that it's, I don't, they're just so different. Like, uh-huh my mood and kind of how I approach things. I don't think it's better when I'm on tea or better when I'm off. I think it's just a little bit different. And I've, because this is my reality in terms of my gender identity, I've gotten a lot better at navigating that smoothly for myself and for the people around me. Did you have a hard time getting prescribed hormones for the way that you use it? Super good question. And what's really funny is that actually the the first provider who ever prescribed me tea, um, she's no longer my provider and she's now actually a good friend of mine. And we do presentations together and we almost always start talking about how I lied to her. Um, in the first time we did a presentation together, I was like really nervous. Why are you so nervous? And I was like, look, I'm just, I'm going to have to talk about, I'm going to have to talk about lying to you. I have to, <laughs> I lied to you. I know, you know, patients lie. Like I lied to you maybe more than the average patient or whatever. <laughs> like, can you, can you deal with that being acknowledged publicly? And she was like, of course. So we talk about that. Um, at this point in that particular provider's training, I would never need to lie to her to get what I need. But at that point, that was, that was a while ago. There was minimal understanding of like gender queer, non-binary, gender non-conforming identities. So I had to lie to her and I did. So I told her I wanted to, I mean, I basically said, you know, I'm a man, which I'm not, and identify as male, which I don't. Um, my therapist, I, I had to get a therapy letter too, because this right. is before she was doing informed consent, before really anybody was doing informed consent. And my therapist like really worked with me to carefully craft that letter um, to be honest, but also get me what I needed. So it was a very like finessed kind of letter, which I really appreciated. She did a great job. Um, but yeah, so I lied to her and then I, um, 
I did my dose adjustments on my own for the most part. Like, I think I talked to her the first time I was like, I don't need to, like my T level was kind of high. Like, I don't need to be a super dude. Like, can we just, (laughs) can we just, you know, take it down a notch? Um, And then one time though, yeah, I had a provider who I think was relatively inexperienced um, or was like new to providing hormone therapy. And so I was like, okay, I do gel and this is my dose. And that person was just like, that's not how it's done. Yeah, because that's kind of what I was wondering. Yeah. Um, because we live in such a binary yeah. world. It's like, well, you're either on hormone or you're not on hormone. What totally. Do, you do it. Yeah. Totally. And I was on hormone just on a very low dose. And, you know, that provider was just kind of like, that's not how it's done. Like, I don't, and I'm like, it is. It is how it's done for some people. It's yeah. not, yeah. So there was a little bit of, um, there was a little bit of a struggle around that, which, you know, was annoying, but also I under, like, that person was where they were at in terms of their learning curve, and they did roll with it, and I ended up getting what I needed, so, but I have the skills to advocate for that, so. Absolutely, and and I think that happens a lot more than providers realize, because I remember when my first patient came in saying, like, I just want to use a little bit, Mm -hmm. I remember thinking, like, wait, what? That's, totally. And then I was like, well, sure, why not? You yeah, know, like, what's it physiologically? How is that? It's not going to hurt you. It's like, totally fine. Yeah. But I remember thinking, like, oh, okay, yeah, got it. Right. Yeah. But it wasn't what I was, like, expecting or what I had been used to. Totally. Um, and we have this narrative, we have this longstanding narrative that, like, in order to be recognized as having a gender identity that doesn't, you know, correspond with the sex you were assigned at birth that you have to be like, you have to have known since you were tiny, you have to be absolutely certain and you're not allowed to change. Now, like when would we ever tell a cis person you are not allowed to change emotionally, you are not allowed to change in how you dress, you are not allowed to change in how you communicate your sense of self to others. Like you have to tell me what it is now and you have to do that for the rest of your life or else you're not real. Like, we would never say that. We would never say that. We know that humans have an ongoing developmental process in every aspect of their lives, and people change over time. So that's one thing I always communicate to my patients is, like, first of all, there's not a, like, I always say there's not a no button or a go button. You're not going to say the thing that tells me, like, you're not allowed. And also, you get to change over time. And if this, if what's true for you now stays exactly true for you forever, then wonderful. And if it doesn't and we need to change things, then just let me know because you're a person. So things may change for you and that's okay. Like, but it's very, it's very difficult, especially I think, you know, thinking like putting on the, trying to imagine being in the shoes of a provider that doesn't have expertise in this area. It's scary to be doing clinical care where there's not good research, where you're operating in a bit of a void. You may be alienated in your clinical setting for doing it. You maybe have a lot of eyes on you. You may be under a lot of pressure. So I get that. Uh, And that's why I'm like committed to education, teaching providers and doing trainings and all of that. Yeah. When I was in New Zealand, um, I had a few, I was the only like queer Mm -hmm. provider and, um, word got out that I did hormone and all of a sudden I had like five patients in a very rural town in New Zealand. Totally. And the doctors who were in charge of like endocrine at the hospital contacted our clinic and like put the kibosh on me doing it wow. because they were like, no, yeah, this has to be done under like specialty endocrine yeah. care. Yeah. 
So of course those patients just don't get hormone anymore. Totally, which is yeah. awful. Yeah, but it's 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 real. Like you know, practicing in the Seattle area, it's a little different. But even here, people get that same kind of scrutiny in different practices. So I try to have a lot of compassion, um, but also say just over and over again, like health is health. Trans people are humans. You do human health. So this is just part of the deal, you this know, like this is just part, part of being of human. Yeah. yeah. So I try to ride that line of like pushing people to like, just saying you're uncomfortable mm-hmm. is not a good excuse for not providing care. Um, but I'm here to like, I and other people are here to help get you what you need yeah. to be comfortable and to feel, you know, like I'll talk to people about, well, if you're nervous about that, why don't you chart it this way? Yeah. Like if you're worried that they're going to change their mind and something terrible is going to happen, then like, document shared decision-making and, and we know how to do that for all sorts of things. We can do that for this too. Like patients make complicated decisions all the time that have much higher consequence, um, in terms of their physical health. So, yeah, there's kind of a misconceived notion of how dangerous hormone therapy is. Yeah. It's perceived as dangerous, I think physically, socially, um, and the reality is it's life-saving. Yeah. Um, and so it is, and, and it's not nearly as dangerous as people think it is. Yeah. 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 You um, know that. Well, I know that, but it's good we talk about it. Um, so are there any unique challenges that your patient population goes through in terms of the, the care services that you provide them? Yeah. I mean, I think, um... I always say this, and it's funny because I was just today I was quoted in The Stranger saying this, but it's like the most gendered profession I think, yeah, at ever, yeah, at all. I think. I mean, really, like when I think about, it, I'm like, yeah, no, it it really is, um, and so it's very difficult to navigate as a patient um, getting care. Like everything is set up to exclude you. Um, and so anything from just like scheduling an appointment to getting a medically necessary ultrasound to banking sperm to, you know, to Mm -hmm. getting pregnant, like all these different things, um, are just so much more difficult. And so I think really a provider role is a crucial provider role is like facilitating, you have to take a bigger role in, in like care coordination than you might with other patients. So if I'm sending someone to get an ultrasound, I am providing their name. You know, I'm saying this patient, this is their name. These are their pronouns. They do, in fact, have a uterus, you know, and I'm trying to answer those questions ahead of time so that they don't come on the patient. Of course, I do all this with the patient's permission. I've certainly referred people who didn't want to be out um, for, like, mammograms uh, in trans women, and I did not out them in that referral. So I always ask. But but in general, I'll try to really pave the way with preemptive communication um, because just the waiting room – I mean, the waiting room is probably one of the worst – points of care it's yeah I mean it's a it's a really difficult point of care so if I can get um if I can facilitate communication before the patient arrives at the next waiting room I'm going to save them a lot of um distress yeah absolutely when I was in private practice we would also kind of create a network of folks where we meet them and try to network and say this is 
who I'm bringing to you, would you mind please like yep. understanding and totally, yeah, totally. You being in a system where you need to refer in the system, it makes it a little bit limiting. Yeah, and I mean, in in some ways it's more limiting, but in other ways, being in a system like this is like we have a list of what we call gender champions oh. for the entire you know, for our entire Washington area. So do we have every specialty on that list? Do we have every clinic location on that list? Not necessarily, but like, if I'm like, who can I send this person for urology to? Or who can I send a cardi? Like, I have a list and all I have to do is like pull it off our interweb and say, okay, let's get you to this person. And then I communicate with that person too. I think that's so good. Cause I mean, when we refer patients, patients don't often question like mm-hmm. why this person, right? you know? Yeah. Um, like my the majority of my practice is cis gay mm-hmm. men with HIV infection yep. around prep, right? Yeah. And so rectal screenings for HPV mm-hmm. and precancer changes is like a big thing. Yep. And referring for follow up on that can be a very personal issue. Yeah. And so I always try to find you know like a gay colon and totally rectal, just like there's for gonna that there's gotta be one. Yeah, yeah. Totally. So I think it is good. And definitely before I was in like a a system. Um, this kind of a healthcare system, then yeah, it was like cultivating that network within community and just really, it's really, I find it so much easier because at least like being in, um, being, being in a coordinated system, like the issue of insurance is kind of out of the table because sometimes my patient would have this insurance and the only really great hematologist I know on these issues like doesn't take their insurance. Mm-hmm. So that was always really challenging and really frustrating, but you know, just keep trying to cast a wider and wider net so you have more and more in your network of people to refer to. Um, But yeah, and then like going back to the original question, other things that can come up, um, things can come up in all different levels from the waiting room on, but like an example I always think of is a friend of mine that's a midwife was admitting a a trans um, man in labor and the computer, like Epic would not let her order his epidural. You know, so like there's hard stops and there's like the soft little, you know, the yellow triangle and then there's the the true hard stop. And so we all need to be working whatever system we're in. We need to be working to investigate, to find those things and to change them Mm -hmm. Uh, because for someone to come in and be, you know, to face the potential of being denied an epidural for a certain amount of time, like that's unconscionable. That's not okay. That's not, no. Yeah. (laughs) How scary, like, to be in labor Mm -hmm. and somebody being like, I'm just having technical difficulties. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. The good thing is that nurses are amazing. So my friend told me that in that situation, the nurses had did everything they could other than, like, getting anesthesia right in the room so that, you know, like, the IV was in, the fluids were taken care of, like, everything was ready. Um, cause they obviously nurses are really good at advocating yeah. for their patients, but, Absolutely. but yeah, so there's lots of, and that's another thing that's kind of nice about being in a coordinated system is that there's, there's a lot of eyes on those things. Like we have teams that are working on those kind of things and it's helpful. Yeah. When I grew up, I grew mm-hmm. up with lesbian moms. Mm-hmm. So, um, that was a unique experience in rural Minnesota. Totally. And we ran into a lot of problems mm-hmm. as a queer family, yeah. as a lesbian family. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm wondering if there are any, like, parenting guidance mm-hmm. that you provide your 
patients? Yeah, and it's interesting because a lot of the people that I talk to about this are not just my patients, right? They're people that participated in research I did. There are people, there's a lot of, um, there's several really great Facebook groups for trans and non-binary people who want to have children using their own gametes, whatever that looks like. So I see, and, and it's, it's not just in, the groups are international, mostly mm-hmm. Europe, different European countries in the U.S. So I hear a lot of experiences, um, and I and I see a lot of what people have done to protect their families and to kind of ease their way through the world a little bit. So it's not all just based on what I talk to my patients about, um, but yeah, it's really tricky. It's yeah. it's tricky, um, and a lot of the things that are challenging are around. Um, I think naming is one thing that's really difficult. Like when you have a baby and there's this creature that is now your new heart that lives outside your body and you couldn't love anything or anyone more and you also don't know how to create a, a socially understood word for the relationship you have with that baby, that is terrifying. Yeah. Like that's very scary. It's vulnerable to be a patient it's vul- or to be a parent. It's vulnerable to be a queer parent and then to be a trans or non-binary parent. Um, that can be really scary. And so just basic things like what is my child going to call me? And so people are creative and there's all sorts of solutions that people come up with. Um, but it's just hard to to be kind of like fighting that tide when it's something that's so so critical like yeah I mean because so you create like this vernacular amongst your mm-hmm. immediate family but then like the kids at school right and like, they're like who's picking you up yeah, today all of this stuff is challenging it's yeah. all and for some people more than others for people with a very binary gender identity it may be less challenging because it may be like yeah I gave birth to my baby and I'm my baby's dad and there's a word for dad mm-hmm. and now when you're using it, people may not understand the whole context and, um, and individual parents decide. I, I think of it as like, everyone, it's an interesting opportunity, as is true with a lot of stuff for like queer families, it's an interesting opportunity where you get to create a narrative. Um, you have the burden of having to create a narrative, but you also have like, there can be some joy in that too. It's like a very mixed bag. But I've heard people talk about you know, what is the narrative of my family going to be? Is the fact that I am the gestational parent that I carried this baby? Um, is that going to be part of our family narrative in public? Is that going to be part of our narrative in private? Is it going to be, you know, what is it going to be? Uh, and then you have kids in the picture. So kids with their developmental needs and all of this. So it's, it's super complicated. Um, some people choose to, that the family narrative, um, is not going to include the fact that they're gestational parents and then mm-hmm. they can say, I'm the dad. And then it's, you know, it is what it is. It's, but it's never going to be, it's never going to be clean and easy. Yeah. I don't think. I can tell that you're super passionate about yeah. this work. And I think that's amazing because I think passion just goes such a long way. Yeah. What does your work provide you um, emotionally? Um, yeah. How does your work fulfill you, I guess, is the question. Yeah. Being a midwife is really hard. It's very hard. A lot of jobs are very hard, and this is a very hard job. <laughs> so I've, sometimes I slip into feeling like it's just taking from me, um, and then I remember how lucky I am to be in these profound moments with people. But I think, to me, at heart, being a midwife has given me 
like the joy and the privilege and the difficulty, but mostly the joy and the privilege of being with people during moments of intense transition in their lives, whether that's having a baby, being in birth, you know, being pregnant, giving birth, uh, taking hormone therapy and having like major transitions around your gender presentation. Like I, I feel like I love transition. Like mm -hmm. I love the, the process of transition. I love watching people be in a state of becoming and like, that's what midwifery is, right? Like babies are coming out and they're becoming air breathers. Like they're becoming <laughs> part of cool. yeah. this realm, right? And people are becoming parents, whether it's their first baby or it's their fifth baby, they're becoming a parent to that baby, they're becoming a new and different parent every birth. Um, and then with transition, people are staying who they are, but their bodies are becoming better reflections of who they are. Uh, and that's like, it's really cool. Like I feel like I could do work around death too because that's another really important transition. I just really, I love, um, yeah, I love the process of becoming. That's what you get to do. That's amazing. It's very cool. And then, you know, it's not always glamorous, but but it is an amazing thing to be um, to be in people's space when they're doing that and to earn their trust to be a part of that and, and just sort of help facilitate their process. Because that's, you know, what we're doing. We're not delivering babies. We're attending to people as they deliver their own babies. And, um, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I've been asking everyone <laughs> yeah. uh, what advice they would give uh, LGBT non-binary people thinking about getting into medicine. Do it because we need us. Yeah. Um, I was talking to someone, uh, I was talking to a reporter recently who said like, you know, well, why isn't there research? You keep saying there's not research, but like, why is there research? Um, and and my first response was just to like laugh and be like, because they nobody cares. And then I was like, okay, let's let's correct that and like tone that down a little bit. But really, like we need more of us in medicine because we need to be the ones setting the research agenda. Mm -hmm. We need to be the ones who are innovating in clinical care. Um, so I would say do it. Uh, because we need you and your patients need you. Um, and also don't don't do it alone, no matter where you are, no matter like, no matter where you are, there is a way to get support and get it, like find a mentor, find several mentors and let them do their job of helping you and supporting you. Um, and there was something that a midwife friend of mine said to me, we were both becoming midwives at the same time. And um, she said this beautiful thing to me that I have since said to many folks um, who have come to, who I've like seen in a moment of struggle in their journey to become healthcare providers. Um, but she said like, there is a community of people that is waiting for you to provide care, care to them, not in spite of who you are, but because of who you are. And they are there. You may not see them when you're in school. Your preceptors may not reflect them. They may not be in the curriculum, but like they are there and they want you. And I like wrote a very short version of that on a post-it note and I kept it on my laptop because every time I was like, that's it. Like I'm done. I can't do this. This is just too hard. And I'm doing all these 24 hour shifts. So emotional coping is like <laughs> shot, which is still my reality. But you know, like, uh, to remember, like I'm not actually alone. Yeah. And like, there's a reason for us to be doing this work. There's a reason for us to be involved. And so do it, but don't do it alone. 
And, and I think all healthcare providers, I would say to anybody becoming a healthcare provider that it's a brutal process and like outcomes in terms of mental health and suicidality and all of that are not good for people becoming medical professionals. So whoever you are, whatever, get your support. Like it's not easy. That is true. Yeah. (laughs) What else do you think we should know? Oh, I just knocked my glasses off. That's what just happened. Um, What else should you know? I'm sure I have an answer to that. That's okay. But I don't know what it is. Well, I want to thank you so very much for taking time out of your busy schedule (laughs) to sit down with me on a Tuesday morning. I really, really appreciate it. And thank you so much for providing the care you do provide because, like you said, you know, you are filling a very specific role in a very well-informed and impassioned way. Mm -hmm. And I'm just so glad Seattle has you. Thank you. And thanks for this. This was like a really sweet opportunity to remember all the things that I, you know, because like day to day grind is Mm -hmm. difficult as medical providers. So this is a really sweet opportunity to just remind myself like what the core of my love for midwifery is. So it was really sweet. Thank you. Thank you. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Please note that this podcast is about individual experiences in healthcare and may be different from what you've experienced. If you would like to share your story, please message us on our website, familypracticepodcast.com, and we'll be in touch. The information discussed in this podcast should not be used for personal medical decision making. Any views or opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent the views or opinions of any organizations mentioned. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. There'll be a new episode in your feed in about two weeks, and thank you again for listening.